cooler language for describing this is to say that one touches an autonomous complex in, within oneself which has a life of its own and an intelligence of its own. And you must listen to it. You must listen as a good court of justice would listen to a witness. And that witness, or whoever is testifying, has the right to say whatever he wishes to say at whatever length he wishes to say it. You may hear pages and pages and pages out of yourself of something that you never knew was there. Somebody tells you how lonely he is, or how angry he is, or how frightened he is, or how badly he thinks you're running your conscious life, or heaven only knows what will come. It may be exceedingly beautiful. It may be exceedingly painful. As I said a little while ago, you are not doing it correctly unless you are shaken by what comes. This is a revelation. to the C.G. Jung Society of Melbourne by Robert Johnson. And welcome to the Society's podcast, I'm Ariel Moy. The Jung Society offers a space for the exploration and development of Jungian ideas and practice. We offer talks on the third Friday evening of every month, as well as courses and workshops, a Jungian library, a newsletter and discussion groups. Please visit our website at jungsocietymelbourne.com or our Facebook page. Robert Johnson was an internationally respected author and Jungian analyst, famous for his works popularising Jungian psychology and mining myths for their psychological lessons. He underwent analysis with Emma Jung, studied under Indian spiritual guru Krishnamurti, and for a time was a Benedictine monk. His most popular books include Inner Work, Using Dreams and Active Imagination for Personal Growth, as well as explorations of masculine, feminine and relational psychology in he, she and we. In this talk, Robert highlights the value of engaging with active imagination in order to do our inner work. We move to encounter and better know our whole psyche so that we might experience integration and a balanced self. That is the aim of inner work. This includes a willingness to dialogue with the elements or entities of our unconscious that may have split where once there was unity. Robert describes how our internal struggles, big or small, speak to these splits in our psyche, often between our ego awareness and elements of the unconscious. He describes eloquently and practically the four steps involved in active imagination. While he notes that engaging in active imagination is exhausting, it is also life-altering quite different from engaging in fantasy. In active imagination, we invite the otherness of our psyche, the parts we struggle with, into awareness and dialogue. We hope you enjoy. When one realises how much importance C.G. Jung laid to dreams, it's astonishing to find out that he says that active imagination is much more important. He says that if one really means business with one's interior journey, he virtually must have active imagination, which is a very broad subject, as you will find out, to go to the depths which are required. 
for a truly serious inward journey. So help help us evolve out what the will of God is for this exact moment in time. And that would be a joint production among all of us, not just something that I bring. Every one of us is a split personality. By the time one comes to um, an educated maturity in modern life and modern consciousness, one has done so by virtue of um, embarking into that world of the pair of opposites, which is a painful thing to go through. It's as if one has to go out of the Garden of Eden. One has to suffer that cataclysm of the spirit, which always divides one up. Our whole life, if you heard my lecture last night, that three-dimensional world, that middle stage, that dark night of the soul, divides us terribly. Virtually everything that we ever touch, short of our enlightenment or our redemption, which is just a little way down the road at least, consists of pairs of opposites. A tiny example, ridiculous, but it bears all that we need for example. I'm torn between wearing my coat and proving to you that I'm a gentleman and leaving my coat here on the chair and being more comfortable. Now that's a very small split in life, but our three-dimensional consciousness consists of such splits as that. And those splits must be reconciled sooner or later or we simply short-circuit our energy out and end up in that exhaustion and loneliness and alienation which is a lot of so many modern people. Active imagination is the best tool, which I know anything about, for healing such splits as that. Of course, that's a tiny split and doesn't register very much in my life. There are bigger splits of vocation and marriage and such things of enormous size, but they are the same kind of split. They differ only in magnitude. I'm going to try and tell you something that you can do about the splitness of your life and the painfulness of your life. <clears throat> Active imagination, rather an unwieldy term, and I apologize for it. I wish Dr. Jung could have found a more graceful or a more noble term than this, but I can't find a better one. So we will stay with this. Is the art of bringing two opposing forces in your life into some kind of reconciliation without one overwhelming the other in either case? It's a no-win, no-lose activity. This is not common to modern mentality, and you must think and understand it a little bit. We have a naive notion going that something should win and obliterate its opposite, and then one would be at peace. If one wants to do this, or but should do that, we generally approach it on the basis that one of these must win. An active imagination is, first of all, a no-win, no-lose activity. 
active imagination is cooperating with the inner world, not being overwhelmed by it, nor dominating it. I can bring this principle to you in only one way which is adequate to me, and that is, curiously, quoting the beginning of the creed, I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. If one understood the import of this, much, much, much healing would take place right there. If everything comes from one source, if there is but one God, maker of heaven and earth, not just residing in heaven and leaving earth to whatever it's left to, but maker of heaven and earth, this implies that any split which we may suffer can be brought back or traced back to a unity again. So no matter what quarrel, no matter what collision, no matter what uh, fight may go on within your psychic structure, it can be traced back to a single source and unity brought to bear upon it. I think that's the most optimistic thing that I know anything about on the face of the earth is that we came from unity and we can trace our quarrels, our interior quarrels, back to a point of unity. An active imagination is one of the tools for doing this. It is an art or an act of tracing back the quarreling dualism which we suffer from until we find out the common root from which both elements sprang and in which both elements can be reconciled. So please remember in everything we are talking about that nothing wins because that implies that something loses and no peace comes from that. There are no victories in active imagination. There's only peace. Before we go farther with this subject, I must make a differentiation of terms which is absolutely required if you are to understand this art. And that is to know the difference between fantasy and imagination. Fantasy is a very poor quality activity. It is an indulgence. In fantasy, commonly, we skim the cream off the top of something that we're interested in and reject the rest of it. The, re the net result of this is that one has the same fantasy over and over and over again. I've gone to the South Sea Islands I don't know how many thousands of times in my fantasies. And I expect that this whole business is going to shipwreck quite soon because I'm going to stay in Tahiti on the way home for a short time <laughs> <laughs> and subject my... Uh, idealistic and utopian fantasies of the South Sea Islands to actual facts, which will be a great shock, of course, of course. I'm prepared for this. But still, just knowing about it uh, won't solve it. It is fantasy to go off to the South Sea Islands and there are coconuts to eat and calm breezes and uh, lovely, lovely azure seas and fair maiden at my right hand all the time and so goes fantasy. Fantasy is an indulgence, and if you can bear the 
the uh, language of it, fantasy is psychic masturbation because nothing ever comes from it. It is never productive. It never yields anything. There isn't anything particularly bad about it either. It's just uh, a big waste. Most of the time when one is occupied in that interior reverie, it is fantasy. It yields nothing for one except to spend one's energy for one. One of the characteristics of fantasy is that it takes no effort and it takes no responsibility and one is not tired at the end of it. One thinks one is a little refreshed for having made fantasy while you're driving on the freeway or doing the dishes or whatever. The back of one's mind, it's as if the cinema is spinning in the back of one's mind and one is thinking about this or that or whatever. The word fantasy comes from the word fantastic, meaning unreal. Nothing is yielded, nothing comes from one's fantasy. On the other hand, imagination is the act of psychic creation, and its chief hallmark is that it's difficult. It takes energy and it's tiring. One may not spend very much time in fantasy without being psychically exhausted by it because one has created something. Imagination does not go over the same track twice. If you're doing active imagination, and it is a true imaginative faculty, you will be tired at the end of it. And unless you have been shaken, unless you have been exhausted by it, unless cold chills have gone up and down your back, or you have been frightened, or your knees shake, or your breath has come you know, short because of the impact of it, unless something like this is happening to you, you are not doing active imagination. It's no fun. For most people, 10 minutes is an outside limit of what you can do, at least early in your experiments with it. Ten minutes of true active imagination can make an impact on your life so that you will never be the same again. This is a test of whether you're doing it rightly. So many people go off, do fantasy, think they're doing active imagination, and talk about having spent all of Wednesday morning at their inner work and active imagination. Well, rubbish. Ten minutes would exhaust you. It would also change the course of your life. This is such a big subject and so broad and my thinking faculty so poor that I'm going to rely simply on the material as it comes out to make the necessary definitions for you. I hope you will learn the art in that way. There are many ways to do active imagination. All of them consist of bringing pairs of opposites to bear upon each other. The way I like best is to sit at my typewriter and I get up every morning of my life and sit at my IBM typewriter. It's the only one that I can't out-type. <laughs> I learned to type 150 words a minute doing active imagination punctuation and spelling out the window, of course. <laughs> now use lowercase for what I say, 
and I use uppercase for what the other uh, says, the other person, uh, whatever is on the other side of the conversation, whatever is the carrier of the other, gets uh, capital letters. And that way I don't have to go to a new line or say he said or I said or it said or then something, so on. The caps in the lowercase indicate that for me. Margin to margin, inexpensive paper because you'll use a lot of it. <laughs> I keep the product of my active imagination for enough days so that it has cooled and I have a little bit forgotten the contents of it. And then I read it over critically. I read it carefully and see what I can learn from it. Then it goes ceremonially to the fireplace. Most people are at home with active imagination in writing. Your notebook or your typewriter or you know, whatever you wish. I know one person who uh, writes with um, red pen for uh, eye and blue pen for, for the other. Anything that works is fine. There are no laws in this except to endure the collision of the opposites which one has found. Some people sculpture their active imagination. It is not necessarily a verbal thing. I remember going through the Louvre in Paris with a young fellow who was scoffing at my profession and my way of thinking and my thoughts and so forth. We came to a marvelous sculpture in which a lion was pulling down a man and it was so realistically done that the claws of the lion were tearing into the muscle of the man. And the, my friend turned around scoffing at me and he said, now I suppose you find something psychological in that. <laughs> and I said, indeed I do. And I talked for a little while and a scoffing look from him. So I stopped midstream and I said, now look, haven't you ever felt the claws of the lion of life in your own muscles? And he said, all right, now I understand. So whoever had done the sculpture was talking about what had happened to him. And he was the man, and the lion was whatever emergency of life or whatever painfulness of life or overwhelmingness of life had gotten its claws into him. We speak in these linguistic forms, and the sculpture had sculpted that. And probably traced back that which is anterior to the lion part of himself and the human side of himself and come to some kind of peace or some kind of understanding or some kind of unity of that experience. And there in the Louvre is, is his work. I do it by typewriter. He did it in stone. One can paint it. I remember one good woman who danced her active imagination and she put me through a very, very hard time. Her dancing was so vigorous and so animal-like because that's what she was coping with in her life that before she was many minutes into her dance in my consulting room, I was in terror behind my chair peering around the edge to watch this process going on. <laughs> It terrified me, the animality of 
what was coming out of her, sounds and motions and down on all fours and she would dance this figure over here and then she'd dance this figure over here. And it was so real, the hair was up on the back of one's neck. Near the end of the hour, she said, Robert, you can come out from behind your chair. <laughs> then she would tell me what she had been doing, because I didn't know. This is not a language which is easy for me. It, it doesn't matter whether I would understand the process. It only mattered that she would do it, and she understand it. Sometimes to have a stupid analyst is a very great asset because you have to tell him then what's going on. <laughs> and you can find out yourself that way. So, dance it, live it, walk it, anything you wish. A friend of mine came the other day, said, Robert, you know about aquariums, and I want to set up an aquarium, and please show me how. So we got an aquarium, and we got the sand, and the heater, and the filter, and such things, and plants. And suddenly, he changed relationship to that project. He snatched it out of my hands, and he knew exactly what he wanted to do. That was a fine moment, and I cooperated with it, and uh, backed off a step or two, because his imaginative quality, his projection of his life, into the life of that aquarium suddenly became manifest. It was very, very powerful. For weeks that man lived out the drama of his soul in the four walls of the aquarium. And when there was a fight, uh, he was deeply touched by it. And when something grew well, excellent. All right, this is perfect active imagination because the elements of one's life these broken, fragmented sections of oneself are played out on typewriter or dance or aquarium or wherever one takes it. There are four stages of active imagination. They're very, very important. Great variety in how you may do these stages, but the stages are very important, and please don't leave any of them out. If you try to slur over some of these things, you simply will diminish the efficacy of the art. The first stage is to invite. In some way, I will talk about typewriter because that's the nearest to me. Invite the interior drama to come. I'll sit down and generally something will be concerning me shall I do this or shall I do that in the course of the day, or I feel guilty over what happened yesterday, or I'm lonely or my fantasy drifts off to something or another. Fantasy is a very good material to translate into imagination. One invites whatever wishes to have something to say. One makes oneself open to or vulnerable to whatever inside you wants to come. The sculptor might say, all right, now I'm inviting the lion to come. And who are you and what do you want? And why do you have your claws in my flesh? And however it's going to go. Or something may have gotten under your skin. And set it up as a dialogue between yourself and the other, whatever the other is. 
Maybe one has fallen in love. Maybe one has a fight with somebody. Maybe one is frightened of something. Well, set that something as the other in the dialogue and invite it to come and let itself be known. If you do this correctly, typewriter style now, but there are many other ways, you will hear a great deal from that other inside yourself. Cooler language for describing this is to say that one touches an autonomous complex in, within oneself which has a life of its own and an intelligence of its own. And you must listen to it. You must listen as a good court of justice would listen to a witness. And that witness, or whoever is testifying, has the right to say whatever he wishes to say at whatever length he wishes to say it. You may hear pages and pages and pages out of yourself of something that you never knew was there. Somebody tells you how lonely he is, or how angry he is, or how frightened he is, or how badly he thinks you're running your conscious life, or heaven only knows what will come. It may be exceedingly beautiful. It may be exceedingly painful. As I said a little while ago, you are not doing it correctly unless you are shaken by what comes. This is a revelation. One experiences what comes. One consents to be touched by some autonomous part of oneself. Then it's your turn, and you answer back. And you say, all right, I've heard what you have said. Now this is what it looks like to me. And you have the right to say everything that you have to say. And the correct atmosphere for this is like a true courtroom of justice. Everybody is allowed to say his say with impunity and with dignity and with safety. You can see why so many pages of active imagination come out of one. One hears duty speaking, and then one hears feeling speaking. All right? They're both worth, li worth listening to. So one experiences what comes. And unless you sweat or your knees shake, or you're frightened, or you're delighted beyond endurance, or some reaction, you're only just playing games with this, and you're not truly laying yourself open to it. The third stage is a very curious one. I have to labor hard to express this adequately. A moral or ethical point of view exists only in human consciousness. And unless the you in active imagination brings that faculty to bear upon this drama, it won't appear from any place else. So the third stage is bringing the ethical or moral capacity to bear on the subject. I was just rereading writer Haggard's She, in which she launches forth into a totally amoral point of view, and she said, I will kill anybody who gets in my way simply because she got in my way. I have only the point of view that I want what I want, and I don't give a damn what anybody else wants. Well, that's the amoral attitude of unconscious complexes in one. And we would simply be loose in the animal world if one did not add 
the moral and ethical point of view from one's own consciousness. I remember a woman was having excellent conversations with her animals, that masculine side of herself. She heard long, long speeches from him. She talked about her point of view to him, and each surprised the other many, many times. You wouldn't believe how bad the communication is among the different parts of oneself. The many people who make you up as personality simply don't know each other, often have never heard each other. Active imagination is a way in which these different parts of you can be heard each to the other. If a corporation were run as badly as we run our interior psychology, the corporation would go broke very rapidly. Suppose production and labor and finance and advertising and design never heard of each other and kept autonomous structures going in the corporation, the corporation would grind to a halt very, very quickly. Active imagination can be looked at as a kind of board meeting of the corporation, which is you. And each of these differing points of view can make itself known so that some kind of intelligent overall decision is possible. This woman had been talking with her animus. And suddenly, he came forth and he said, give me your keys and give me your purse. I'm going to run things from now. So she gave him her purse and her keys, all this on the typewriter. This is, is her imaginative structure. She came and told me this. I jumped to my feet and said, and said in no way may he take off your purse and your keys or your autonomy, your structure, your consciousness is simply negated. Now you go immediately and get your purse and your keys back from him. Otherwise, you're simply then a pawn of your animus and he will run everything in sight. One does not have the, the right to run him either. Back to that basic principle that no one shall win, no one shall lose in these discussions. So she went back and demanded her purse and her keys and he gave them up again. Things went well. I didn't see her for a year or so. I happened onto her on the street one day, and no one had to tell me that she had gone off on a gigantic inflation. She was arrogant beyond anything. She was haughty. Um, she was above it all. And she was telling me uh, how much more she knew than I did at the moment, which is quite likely, but she didn't have to hurl it in my face on the street. <laughs> And the animus had come and gotten her purse and her keys again and was running her life. But by chance I saw her again, perhaps 15 years or so later, and she was an absolutely crushed person. She was defeated, she had no energy, she had no spark, a monotonous tone of voice, and her life had simply been flattened out. The whole energy system had collapsed in her because she did not keep the correct balance between inner and outer, or ego and animus in her case. This can happen only too easily with a man and his anima, or a woman and her animus. If either dominates the other, 
the very flow of life itself is curtailed. So that third stage is so important. The ego must produce a moral and ethical element so that a certain balance, a certain fairness, a certain rightness, which is the very essence of culture, will prevail. And the fourth stage is go and do something about it. You have learned, presumably, from this exchange with the other inside yourself, whatever that other may be. The course of one's life has been altered. If you have done your work and borne the impact of what's happened, you'll be a different person consciously and ceremonially it is required of you to go and do something about this change. Register the change in some way. If it's a perfectly obvious thing, then it's very easy. But sometimes what has happened to one is so subtle or is of such a delicate nature that you may have to resort to some symbolical thing you may have to do some ceremonial thing in order to honor what has happened. But do it physically. Don't just uh, make a New Year's resolution. Actually go and do something with the muscles of your body. Probably the weakest area in Jungian psychology is that Jungians tend to uh, live their psychology only from the neck up. <laughs> And they can go through the most lofty, wonderful things. And the practicality, just the earthiness, the muscleness of your being is not affected. And this is not correct. So do something that is tangible. Do something to acquaint the somatic aspect of your life with what has happened. And again, your knees will shake or your heart will beat because you're you have come close to something numinous in that manner. Those are the four stages. Invite, experience, add the moral point of view, and then go and do something in honor of what has happened to you. I will give you examples of all of these things, which I hope will flesh out this rather dry theory. Active imagination is useful where there are too many fantasies or too many dreams. There are people who live in inundation and they're simply flooded. They can hardly get their mind on what they're doing. Fantasies keep robbing one's energy or one drifts off into a fantasy and forgets to open the door before you go through it. There are people who are, are that misty and that foggy that they simply are inundated by the interior life. Active imagination is excellent for those people because one can condense and limit and digest this flood of psychic material and get some sense of focus and some sharpness in one's life. Curiously, active imagination is also very useful for those dry souls who have too few dreams or whose fantasy life is all but lost to them. Then you sit down to your typewriter or your aquarium or your dance and you draw the water of life up for you, equally effective. If one's 
adaptation to life has been damaged, active imagination is a lifesaver. Suppose one is injured in an accident and not doing particularly well in the physical aspects of life, certain things are cut off to one and one thinks about dancing or one thinks about hiking or one thinks about uh, the ski trip or something which is close to one. All right, go and do it in active imagination and get the prize fighter on the other end of your conversation or go skiing and see what happens. All of this on paper. I think you will have discovered by this time the marvelous law that the unconscious cannot tell the difference between an imagined event and what we call a true event. So what you have imagined registers with the unconscious at least as powerfully as something that you have actively, actually done. India says that imagination is deeper and more real than what we call tangible fact. What we call imagination, they call reality. What they call reality, we call illusion. I propose to stand somewhere in between the two. If someone falls into the same hole over and over again, active imagination is a very fine tool. And somebody comes and says, look, I've fallen in love for the sixth time with a no good boy, and I'm getting tired of this. The first time it was bad luck, and the second time was a repeat, and the third time I was bewildered, and the fourth time was terribly painful, and the fifth time I was angry, and the sixth time, well, there must be something in me which is keeping this series going. That's exactly time to go and have a good talk with a no good boy inside yourself and thrash it out with him. Why is he doing this? Will he be so kind as to go and live on some other level and not wreck your life? Or maybe he has some value which you're not comprehending. Or, well, one doesn't bring a, a preconceived idea to bear upon this. Go see. Ask him. Why are you plaguing my life? And he will tell you in no uncertain terms. What a powerful way to touch these things which seem to plague one as if they were fate, which is only to say unconscious parts of yourself. Active imagination is never a compromise. Later on I will talk about something that sounds very much like a compromise, and it's useful briefly in one's life, but ideally active imagination is never a compromise. You must keep at it until you search back the split, anterior to the splitness, and find the unity in it. One must not use active imagination for dominating the interior comments, interior parts of oneself. There's a, a wonderful story from Saint Gertrude of Bingham, a German medieval saint, who was famous for altering the weather. If you could get to St. Gertrude, she could make it rain for you, or no rain on Tuesday while you get the hay, uh, the hay in, or some such thing as that. She was very famous for this. But she always did, said very uh, stoutly that she never told God what to do. She only pointed the facts out to him. 
<laughs> That's a nice, neat delineation which is extremely useful for us now. Don't go charging into that numinous realm to tell it what to do, but you may point the facts out to it, which is a tactful way of, of bringing your point of view to bear. Active imagination is mostly for people over 35 years of age or thereabouts. Ideally, which doesn't work very often, one should spend the first part of one's life establishing one's outer life and one's profession and one's marriage and one's income and such things as that. Then one has the right to begin to make peace between the outside world, which one has built, and the interior world. But our culture is changing so fast that there are more and more and more people earlier than 35 years of age who need this technique. There are teenagers now who are landed with things of such depth that this tool is appropriate for them, even if it seems awkward in some other respects. One school of thought and much of my information comes from Barbara Hanna in Zurich, says never use an actual person in your active imagination. Don't go quarrel with your neighbor or make passionate love with your girlfriend in active imagination because, though not frequently, such things can go creeping around in the unconscious and affect that other person in a subliminal way. This doesn't happen very often, but often enough so that many people say, just don't use an actual person to fantasy or do your imagination with. It's better to construct a personality. If you're quarreling with your neighbor because he leaves the ash cans out and you have to put them back before you can get out of the driveway on Wednesday morning, don't go quarrel with your neighbor, Mr. So-and-so. But see if you can find a carrier for the principle that is annoying you. And you would maybe dialogue with the archetype of thoughtlessness or inconsideration and call it some fantastic name and do your dialogue with that. Because it is truly that quality that you're concerned with, not the man who is your neighbor, who's no better nor no worse than you are probably. There are many schools of thought on this subject which in, uh, instruct one to use actual people in one's active imagination. So I leave this to you. There are arguments both ways. Barbara Hanna said that she never could do active imagination with anyone else in the room. The very private quality. Active imagination is the best possible tool to dislodge an animus or an anima possession. And what modern person doesn't get into an animus or anima possession only too frequently? When a man wakes up in the morning and he's in a terrible mood and just everything is dark gray before he so much as opens an eye to see what life's going to bring him. And he knows that there's disaster only around the corner. By the time he gets downstairs to breakfast, he's in a terrible mood and ready to fight the next person who crosses his path. If he will go to his typewriter or whatever 
system is his and have it out with his anima and come to some kind of terms with her, generally just to listen to her and find out why she finds it necessary to be so obstinate that day is enough to quiet her down a great deal. Or if a woman gets going with her animus and she's simply a buzzsaw with anybody who comes near her, it's good to go off and talk with the animus and see what he's up to. He may have some very legitimate thing to say and quiet down as soon as you have heard. If one is in that stage of life where one is having to detach from someone, if you're young, or maybe not so young even, and you're still trying to gain some independence from your parents, do active imagination and talk with your parent or a parent. Construct somebody who is, is the mother for you and go and have your battles with her or confess your loneliness or how much you resent what life has done to you and you'll discover that pull back to childhood again. And mother will tell you what she, how the episode looks from her point of view. One can gain a good deal of independence this way. Or if one has been divorced and suddenly life is, is a terrible loneliness and a blank page for you, go and talk to the wife which you have lost or the husband which you have lost and work on this and listen and search this collision or antipathy back to its source until something is livable for you. Active imagination is excellent for decontamination. Dr. Jung always left a half hour free after he did an analytical hour with a schizophrenic patient just to cleanse himself. He would immediately go into that dialogue in his interior world and get the impact and the storms which had been constellated in him through the madness of the person he had been with, get those settled, and then he could go on. Or if you're, you're tired, or if you've been downtown all day and feel as if you've simply been inundated or contaminated with too much, go home and do even 10 minutes of this dialogue inside yourself, and you'll be peaceful. And that which has inundated you will not be so painful to you. Many years ago, I lived on the coast just north of San Diego, a beautiful house overlooking the ocean. I, went, um, I lived up there in this lovely, lovely house. And the beach bums uh, took over down on the beach immediately below my house. There was a great uh, schism between uh, the people who lived in proper uh, ways up here and the people who lived in their beach bum ways down there. Well, I'd go and watch the beach bums often. They lived a life which was very far from my own. I was secretly very envious of them. <laughs> One day I caught out of the quarter of my mind, so to speak, a voice in me that said, why don't you go and make some indiscretion get yourself thrown out of St. Paul's Church in San Diego, which is where I worked, 
then you could be come be a beach bum then you'd be happy <laughs> well, I was horrified at this thought and terribly pleased too that's <laughs> But such is the splits that go on in one. Well, I took the matter to active imagination, and my typewriter and I struggled on this for weeks and weeks and weeks. I engaged the beach bum, who put out a very convincing argument. Look, get yourself busted down there at St. Paul's, and then you can come up here and uh, live on the beach and be free men, be happy like all the rest of us. And I would say, and it would say, and I would say, you, you can see this conversation going. The argument on my side was, I like my house, and there's space for guests, and it's a beautiful place, and I have a good position at St. Paul's. Jack Sanford and I worked together at St. Paul's. And I, um, I have a very good way of life going. But this other voice said, look, come on, be a beach bum. So, I, so to speak, rubbed the beach bum and the Lord of the Manor up on the cliff together for weeks and weeks and weeks. Long, long, long dialogues. Sometimes sarcasms. You sitting up there in your lordly manner, and you're lonely as hell. Now admit it, you're lonely, aren't you? I would say yes, but do you think it would be any better if I come down and uh, live in a cave on the beach? back and forth and back and forth. Well, how am I going to make a living if, if I turn into a beach bum? We well, can always sell drugs like the rest of us. <laughs> I shook in my boots for days over that. <laughs> I'd never considered myself a drug runner. But one finds some very, very strange things cursing in one's bloodstream when you begin active imagination. Well, I shook in my boots. But I didn't let loose. I worked for a very long time. And the net result is mostly a responsible person who stands in front of you this afternoon. <laughs> but there's just enough beach bum over here to give considerable spice to it. And I hope you appreciate him because I like him. <laughs> That's a very good example of active imagination. To take these two wildly divergent parts of your life and see what they're going to do to each other. They will do nothing but each improve the other if you do it correctly. So I didn't have to ruin my reputation, neither am I so badly alienated from the beach bum aspect of life either. A very good outcome from it. A woman who was much inclined to depreciate herself had a dream that she saw a painting and the painting was just a blurred muddle of nothing. She came to me and told me the dream, burst into tears, and said, this is incontrovertible proof that I'm good for nothing. I'm just uh, a muddle. Well, she isn't. She's a highly educated, highly responsible, intelligent woman, and she is not a muddle, not a failure. So I said, go and look at the painting very carefully and closely in active imagination and see, see what is there. She came back next week and she said, the most extraordinary thing happened. In active imagination, I went to, back to the dream and looked more carefully at the painting. And it, it was true, it was just a brown, muddy muddle. 
But the Virgin Mary came and stood beside me and said, Turn it a quarter turn. So I turned it a quarter turn clockwise. Suddenly the paintings leaped into coherence, and it was a painting of a mountain with the Virgin Mary standing on the top of it and her cloak spreading out, protecting all of mankind. But what a beautiful thing. This is one of the excellent uses of active imagination to go look more carefully or more pointedly into a dream which seems inconclusive to you. One can finish out a dream which is unfinished or one actually can bring one's conscious point of view to bear upon a dream which is in some way unsatisfactory to you. Please don't dominate the dream but you can make your point of view known to the dream. The same woman dreamed that she saw someone write on a blackboard the word lemon. And she burst into tears and came and told me, well, here's incontrovertible proof that I'm a lemon. <laughs> this is the symbol of my life, and just um, there is no hope. I'm simply a reject of life which of course she is not. And I said, you go back and look. She said, I can't stand it. I, I can't sear my eyes with uh, another look at that awful, awful commentary on my life. And I said, you go look. So she took courage and in her active imagination looked at the blackboard and she had misread the word and it was melon. The same letters as lemon, but she had misread. That woman was constantly misreading her life and downgrading it. If she looked more carefully, then the true excellent proportions of her life were apparent. Now we need to talk about some misuses of active imagination, because anything as powerful as this tool, of course, has its misuses. Do not turn active imagination into magic. That is, don't use it as a tool for getting what you want. Don't dominate the interior dimensions of your life and force things to go or even pressure things to go where you want them to go. The modern world is full of techniques for getting what you want how to win friends or influence people, or how to demonstrate, or how to uh, get money, or how to exercise power. The modern world has gone diabolical in this respect. And it's nothing but the old subject of magic again, how to impose your will upon fate. Don't ever turn active imagination into magic. First of all, it will work for you, but then it will boomerang and it will bring terrible results to you finally. Magic tries to get a victory for one side of these pairs of opposites. And this is not legitimate. I told you from the very beginning that no one wins, or if somebody wins in a discussion like this, one is off balance or one-sided with it. Active imag imagination is realer than real and to be taken very seriously. Don't ever do it lightly. It's probably worth it to have a room where you do it or a time in the day 
or light a stick of incense which will burn while you are doing this, in some way delineate this section of your life so that it is a holy place. Don't ever do it casually. It's possible to do it hanging from a bus strap on the bus coming home after work. It's possible to do this, but make a little circle for yourself of holy space, and that's sufficient. I'm so pleased with that bit in Don Quixote, where Don Quixote said, I'm searching for bread that is made from better than wheat, meaning the host, of course. Well, active imagination is realer than real. Distrust anything that fanatically pleases you. Anything that's a great victory, or just marvelous, or finally one gets one's way, or a, a great in, enormous breakthrough of some kind. Beware of that, because active imagination doesn't go that route. It's not a technique of victories. They're marvelous moments, they're ecstatic times, there's great happiness that springs forth from this. But if you feel fanatically buoyed up or pleased, you're probably in the world of trickery. Somebody asked a um, very wise person, how do you tell a real prophet? And the reply was, if he tells you what you want to hear, he's no good. <laughs> so, if active imagination turns up some marvelous victory and tells you what you want to hear, it's no good. Better go back and examine the balance of the elements which you are listening to again. Active imagination is no substitute for life. You can't go off to the desert of the Himalayas and simply devote yourself to this marvelous interior world and forget about all that goes on out there. Only a person who is well-rooted in actual practicalities of life has the right to this activity. But again, that has its limitations, and there are people who are very shaky who can profit a great deal from active imagination. One must be cautious and have a sufficient differentiation between sentimentality and archaism. Most people don't know the difference. Sentimentality, by definition, is repressed brutality. It is one of the terrible things that we indulge in. Sentimentality consists of putting the pressurized can of whipped cream over the top of something to make it look palatable or bearable for one. And it only covers up the issue and one's estate is worse than before. So don't indulge in sentimentalities in active imagination. Once in a long time, somebody will come in with an active imagination that... Uh, the dove flies in with the olive branch fresh from the ark and St. Cecilia is playing music and it's just uh, the sunrise and there's a burst of golden color and so on. Well, rubbish. It doesn't go like that. 
this is simply gathering together all of the whipped cream of life and trying to make something of it and one will only make the opposite one of the most terrible statements I know is that definition of sentimentality it is repressed brutality There are certain people who gravitate off into these wonderful, lovely, mauve-colored fantasies, and that is not active imagination. <laughs> However, archaisms are very valuable to one. Archaism being the old speech. I know people who can do active imagination only in Elizabethan English. Well, lovely. <laughs> but I know a woman uh, who's native tongue, at least by growing up, is a Hindu tongue. She was born and grew up in India. And she can only do active imagination in Gujarati. All right. If there is some old speech, or if there is uh, something of dignity, or something of depth, or tranquility, which touches you in this manner, this is excellent. Things can be said in Elizabethan English, which cannot be said in point-blank modern English. Von Franz tells such a funny story. She said her use of active imagination was delayed at least ten years, because every time she opened up to see who wanted to say what, some gentleman with a plumed hat would come and make a sweeping bow and take his hat off and begin with a phrase such as henceforth or dear madam or uh, good day to you and she was so put off she'd close the door and go away <laughs> finally she came to understand that her animus was of such an archaic quality that he would speak in no other tongue if she was going to get into contact with him this was the way to do it so she put up with his ridiculous medieval archaic speech and a great deal happened to it to her and to him then probably the least deep thing you can do with active imagination but it's still worth it is what I call a horse trade <laughs> example when I began doing analytical work early in my life I had to work in evenings a great deal of the time. I was not overworked by any means, had long free times in the day, but the kind of people I was likely to attract would come in evening time or Saturday morning. Well, a spoiled brat in me resented this bitterly. Evenings are my time. Evenings are for fun. Evenings are for companionship. And I don't want to work in the evening. I would forget appointments, or I would get rude, or something would go wrong. So much of me was in rebellion against this working in the evening that it was actually making trouble for me. So I took this immediately to active imagination, and I said, now look, if we're going to earn our living, you've got to uh, quit this childish, spoilt brat business of getting off in a sulk every evening. And he would say, and I would say, and he would say, and I would say, and you know how it goes. Well, the best we could do right then is to make a deal or a horse trade. 
And I said, if I'll take you to a drive-in after work and feed you something nice, will you leave me alone (laughs) while I'm doing the disciplined work? And he said, yeah, I'll buy that. So we made this horse trade or this deal. And I did something for him after work and he allowed me to earn our living. I always made it plain that it was our living. early in the evening. All right, that's a pretty low form of active imagination, and it's only an expediency, but it worked. It's worth it. We did better than that after a time, but for many, many months, that's how I managed my life. When you come up against a particularly thorny thing where discipline is going hardly for you, One can make a deal like this and just get by and stay with it and do better than that. Then there's a middle range of intensity or depth or um, integrity for analytical work. And examples is the best illustration of that. Long years ago, I had a dream that a lion came into my study while I was working and scared the wits out of me. I was terrified in the dream. I don't know what to do with lions. I I tried to get him out of my study, and I pushed him, and I told him to get out, and I used dog language, which didn't work at all. And he wouldn't go away. End of dream. It's a highly unsatisfactory dream. Well, that's certainly in the category of unfinished business. If you have a lion in your study, uh, you can't just leave it that way because (laughs) it's not happy and I'm not happy and there's warfare. Well, this is prime stuff for active imagination. So, of course, I opened up the subject and I began discussing with my lion. And I tell him what I think. I've got my work to do. Get out of here, please. You're bothering me. You don't belong in here. Well, he wouldn't go. Neither would he say anything. But mm, he wouldn't go away. Sometimes the other in one's active imagination won't talk. It just acts. So many sessions of active imagination. And you know, I had worked three or four different days on this before it dawned on me that the lion wasn't hurting me. How stupid can you get? I was impressed with that. Well, why am I making such a fuss? The lion isn't hurting me. But I still tried to get him out of my study. I'd push him and I'd talk to him and I'd bargain with him and I would beg him and I even twisted his tail once. (laughs) And he wouldn't go. So finally, I gave up trying to get him out and he would wander around the study and I would sit down to do my work. All of this is active imagination, remember. And uh, he'd come and rub up against me and purr. I couldn't get any work done that way. (laughs) So finally I got him to go and sit in the corner. That's all right. Not very good solution, any of this. It isn't going well. Active imagination doesn't have to go well. It just has to go. That's The only requirement of you is that you keep contact, that you keep trying. You try everything you know, 
And most of it doesn't work, of course, but eventually it does. So one day, after many, many sessions of going to my study in active imagination, and my lion is there, and he purrs, or he rubs against me, or he scratches, or something. And finally, he was sitting most of the time over in a corner, and this was working out pretty well. One day, I noticed that the lion had turned into a bronze statue, seated, weight on one paw, the other paw turned up like this, and a book in his paw. All right, it has never changed in the 30 or so years since. And I can go any time I wish and see my lion, which is now bronze, and sits in the corner of my study. Now, can you understand the psychological impact or import of this? And that was finally the solution to this problem, which I couldn't have devised, but it's what we between us, among us, devised. And that's satisfactory to me. He can stay in my study. I provide the study. He provides the lionness. And I'm the stronger for having made some kind of peace, some kind of terms with the lion nature inside myself. One of the very excellent uses of this tool is to continue or work on a dream which is not satisfactory to you. Many dreams are fragmentary or stop unfinished or perhaps go racing off in a direction which is unlivable for you. Dr. Jung tells an example of this. A young man who was working with him dreamed that his girlfriend slid down a snowy slope out onto the ice of a lake, broke through the ice, and disappeared. End of dream. <coughs> Dr. Jung pounded the table and did one of these mock rages and said, Are you a man or are you a mouse? Are you going to let your girlfriend die? Are you, you go after her. Do something. So in active imagination, the boy got, I forget what he got, but he crawled out on the ice and got the girl and dragged her back in and warmed her up. Okay, this is legitimate. If a dream goes in a direction which is not adequate or not workable for you as a human being, you can go and do something about it. What I'm going to say next, uh, I proceed with apologies and I'm speaking very humbly, and I probably ought not to bring the subject up at all, but it's too rich to miss. And with all good things preceding it, I think Castaneda's Don Juan books are perfect active imagination and very valuable. They bear all the laws of active imagination. Which <clears throat> books? Um, Castaneda's Don Juan series. An American author who purports to have gone into Mexico and contacted an old Indian uh, master shaman, and the several volumes of them are conversations between Castaneda and Don Juan. And I think it is a superb example of active imagination and very valuable, and I'm in no way running the books down or discrediting them. They say exactly what they need to say, and they say it in the form probably the only form it could be cast in. I respect them a lot. I wouldn't be in Castaneda's shoes because uh, he has put this out as objective fact. 
and I'm afraid that sometime he's going to have to say, yes, all this happened in my study. I will applaud him for this, but most of the world wouldn't. Now there's a third kind of active imagination, quite rare, but without doubt the most powerful and the most uh, profound impact which is likely to come in this department or area of one's life. Active imaginations of very great power occasionally simply come and seize one and take one off into their realm, whether you want to go or whether you like it or not. One will, will be driving or doing the dishes or uh, perhaps even concentrated on some subject, and one will discover this drama, this myth, this intense happening suddenly going on in the back of one's head. This is active imagination in its unasked for aspect. I would like to tell you an example of it, the best way I can speak. The example is my own, which is the only thing I have the right to talk about. I apologize that I bring you my own material. Ordinarily, one shouldn't talk about these things, but this is about 35 years old. And I think maybe it's cool enough so that I can risk telling you about it. This is what suddenly presented itself in the back of my head, unasked, unplanned, and unwarranted as far as I was concerned. It's dusk, and I'm squatted down before a little fire on the side of Mount St. Helens, which later on came to great fame as the volcano which blew up in the northwest of the U.S. That is my birthplace and where I spent my youth, so Mount St. Helens is a youthful ground for me. It's dusk. The blues of the evening sky are incredibly beautiful, and here's the big mountain, and there's Spirit Lake down there, highly, highly colored. And the fire in its orangeness is so fine. The young man comes and stands on the other side of the fire. A long time uh, intervenes. And then the fire takes itself up and goes down and burns at the bottom of Spirit Lake as a tiny little spot of orange fire a mile or so away. The fire comes back presently. The man, young man, opposite me, stands and makes one step and steps into the fire and absorbs the fire into his bloodstream. Another long space of time. The young man who has fire flowing in his bloodstream now takes me off into outer space a great distance far, far away from the world. And he says, I'm going to show you how the world was created, how the universe was created. He shows me a spinning spiral nebula which spins itself into a jewel emitting most iridescent colors and great intensity. I'm awestruck by this display of light and the many coloredness of it. Then the jewel splits down its axis and not only is it spinning in its jewel likeness and its facetedness, 
but it's also rotating the two halves against each other like this, which adds a whole new dimension of facetedness or light capacity in it. Then as if that weren't enough, it begins to erupt out of its north pole and take itself back into its body through its south pole, which adds still another dimension of lightness and facetedness to it. I'm awestruck with this. Then I do something in the active imagination which gives me great embarrassment later. I tug at the sleeve of the young man and I say, this is all very fine, but what's it good for? You know, that awful American question. <laughs> what's it good for? He does me the respect of ignoring me. I tug on his sleeve again and I say, yeah, but what's it good for? And he turns around and absolutely withers me. He said, it's not good for anything, just look. So I'm quiet then. I watch this display of light going on. After a while, he takes me back to the earth. He stands in the middle of the fire. He steps back from the fire. The fire goes down and burns under the lake again. The fire comes back, burns between us. He goes away. And this is finished then. Now what in the name of heaven does one ever do with something like that? And it is clear from the content of the active imagination itself what to do. You just keep still. You just observe it. Just record it. Just let it imprint in your being. Or Jack Sanford said one day, Sometimes there are contents of the collective unconscious which have to be known by some conscious sentient being. And it came and demanded to be known, to be seen through human eyes or human imagination. Now occasionally something like that comes to one and leaves one absolutely bewildered. One is, is, is just silent and mute and a bit helpless in the presence of it. Such things don't happen very often, but when they do, it makes a powerful, profound impact on one's inner life. This is the nature of vision. So I'd like to point out those three levels or three depths or three intensities with which active imagination can make itself known to you. The horse trade, which is just expediency, the work on something that needs further work or elaboration inside, and these things which simply fall out of heaven into one's being and leave an enormous impact on one. Those are three such levels. <coughs> I suspect that Dante's Commedia Divina the Divine Comedy, is of this third order. Do you, do you remember it begins, Dante said, I was walking in the countryside at dusk one day, minding my own business, and I fell through a hole. All right, and the whole poem uh, follows from then. And his guide comes, and he goes through the ten levels of hell, each one of them described, he shinnies down the thigh of the devil who lies at the center of the universe. And he keeps going and he goes through purgatory 
and finally to paradise. This is a visionary experience such as I've just described to you. If they're deep enough, if they're profound enough, and if one is an artist, one can lay these out for the edification of other people, but mostly one just keeps quiet with them. They have their impact and they have their nourishment for you. I suspect that this happens to more people more often than anybody knows about. I would like to finish with a delightful story which warms my heart to great depth and it's a bit of active imagination. This is a story which I first heard as the, the miracle of Guadalupe, but I find out now that it has antecedents and did not begin in Mexico, but is a story of great antiquity from old Europe, but I learned it through Mexico. And here is the story. See if you can find it as active imagination or see if some part of you resonates to it. And what's particularly nice about it is that it's a woman's story. They're scarce. It seems that there's a fair young thing who has entered a convent, and she's uh, a novice, an exemplary uh, novice, in that she's in her prayer stall, and she does exactly as she is told. She's a perfect novice. And one day she's saying her office in her choir stall. And I don't know what kind of a convent this was, but she saw through the screen a young man who winked at her. <coughs> Terrible convent. <laughs> this upset her uh, fiercely, and she lost what is known in monasticism as control of the eyes. She simply couldn't control her vision, and she looked back, and he was still there. Well, prayers were gone for the day. She couldn't concentrate any further. And she spent a tumultuous day and uh, slept very little that night. The next day, she could scarcely wait to get to her choir stall to see if the young man was on the other side of the screen. And he was indeed, and he winked again. This upset her fiercely. She simply no more prayer for the day. And she did the best she could with it, but she was on fire. She couldn't sleep at all that night. Next day she came up and could scarcely wait to look. And yes, indeed, there was the young man again, handsome as ever. And he slipped a note through the screen to her. She tucked the note into her breviary and couldn't wait to get off to private to see what the note had said. And the note said, be ready at midnight, and I will come with a ladder and take you away. There was no choice to be made. She simply was captured by this, so she was ready at midnight, and the young man came with his ladder and took her away. And they had a voluptuous, marvelous, wonderful week, just idyllic time. <clears throat> they had run away together, and everything that that implies took place between them. But it only lasted a week. He abandoned her. He, he was cruel to her. He had given her a terrible illness, and he had gotten her pregnant, and then left her stranded. She had her baby, but the baby died. She was ill. She had no work. 
of course couldn't go to the convent. Everything went terribly badly for her. And finally, after some years, we see her again. She's become a prostitute, and she's come to the end of her life. And she's so ill that she's going to die soon. In her desperation, knowing that everything has been lost, she has only one wish left in her life, and that is that she wants to see her beloved choir stall again. She thinks maybe if she goes back, they might hire her as scrub woman. There's no chance, possible chance, that she could resume her religious life. She goes back, and she's aged so badly and is so terribly disfigured that nobody recognizes her. And the Mother Superior does indeed employ her as charwoman, the scrubwoman. She has her bucket, bucket and her rags, and she's going around cleaning you know, the convent floor. There's a terrible moment because it comes time to clean the floor immediately before her old choir stall. And she is mopping the floor with her tears more than with the rags at this time. She collapses completely and has come to the end of her life and she thinks maybe she might be vouchsafed to be allowed to die before her old choir stall. The suffering is terrible. At this moment, the Virgin Mary comes down from the pedestal beside the altar and explains to the girl that the Virgin has taken the girl's place every day for the ten years. No one knows that she is gone and she is to resume her place in her choir stall as if nothing had happened. She became a very profoundly uh, deep religious person and became um, the mother superior of her convent. Now this is an active imagination of somebody who needed it very badly. And if you have some understanding of the person's need, you'll have an understanding of the consciousness of that person. And this is the perfect active imagination of unlived life for a nun. Now, if you're not a nun, then you have to go do a, a different kind of active imagination and perhaps go and find your way to your choir stall. One of the powerful things that active imagination can carry for you is to live unlived life for you. If you're a nun, it's the gypsy boy that you haven't lived out. And if you've raised a family on the face of the earth and done well with it, it's probably the nun in you that has remained unlived, so that would populate your imaginative life. I think I say good afternoon to you. enjoyed Robert's rich talk about active imagination. He described the many possible ways we might work with active imagination, including dialogue through writing, painting, sculpting and movement. By inviting a conversation with the other, or a personification of the struggle within, we come to know ourselves more deeply and can work on finding ethical ways and enacting practical ways of managing the needs of both ego and unconscious. 
Active imagination can be employed across a range of experiences. For example, when we engage in too much reverie, if we find ourselves in maladaptive patterns of experiencing, or if you want to understand a troubling or ambiguous dream. Robert notes differing levels of active imagination, from negotiating a deal with an inner entity or need, to working more deeply with an aspect of our experiencing, through to visionary experiences where active imagination simply drops into our lives unbidden. Thank you for listening, and please visit us at www.youngsocietymelbourne.com or have a look at our Facebook page. Thank you.